I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Blackest eyes, the devil's eyes, purely and simply evil. You're out of your mind, Wayne. God bless you. <laughs> what do we do? Hello out there and welcome back to Precinct 13, a podcast about the movies, music, and mind of John Carpenter. My name is Nick Rocco Scalia. I'm joined as always by Chris Oliphant. Chris, it's October. It's the season of The Witch. I'm feeling in the spirit. <laughs> How are you doing at the moment? I'm doing fantastic. This is definitely my favorite month of the year for cinema, my friend. Yeah, um, it, it's one of mine, too. <laughs> like, everybody keeps saying that to me. You're like the fourth person this week that has said to me, this is my favorite <laughs> month of the year just because I love horror movies so much. And I'm I'm with that, but uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess I, I'm an Oscar season guy, maybe. Does that make me a total wanker? <laughs> uh, the Oscars have been kind of on a decline in my opinion in the last couple of years. I don't know. I I am not nearly as interested in the Oscars as I am in uh, October and, you know, horror movie season, but I don't think that makes you a total wanker. <laughs> Just 99% of a wanker. <laughs> well, I don't mean the show itself. I mean, I, I barely watch the Oscars oh. anymore, but like around December and January, particularly January if you're not in a, a major city, it just seems like all the really, really awesome movies, the stuff that I'm really into comes out then. So I guess yeah. if uh, if October was uh, ranked on the list, I think that would be maybe second for me. But I am already, I mean, I basically just binge horror movies for the entire month and go back and watch like old Tales from the Crypt episodes and uh, mm. any like anthology. I love just sort of bite-sized horror stuff. Uh, of course, a lot of John Carpenter movies I've definitely gone back to. So I'm really feeling it this year. Like I said, I, uh, I I got a little bit of an early jump on it. The weather where I'm at has been just kind of cold and rainy and the trees are starting to turn. And man, I'm, I'm just really sort of feeling the spirit of the season at the moment. So I got to ask, have you seen anything recently that uh, we might want to recommend to our listeners, horror movies that might brighten their season or darken their season, as it were? Yeah, I mean, and I wanted to start off by saying I just found out that my local theater is going to be playing uh, Wes Craven's Nightmare on Elm Street on October 27th. And I'm so pumped to see that because I've never seen it on the big screen. And it's one of my favorite movies of all time. Yeah, that's a classic. I, I love the original Nightmare on Elm Street. Yep. Um, right now, let's see. I have I have my eyes on um, two filmmakers in particular. Um, I just watched Midsummer. Um, or is it Midsomar? I don't even. It, it, I don't know how to pronounce it really. But um, uh, the director of Hereditary, Ari Aster. Yes, I saw Midsummer in in the Midsummer when it came out. I saw it in July. Oh, uh, see, I couldn't find it anywhere around here in theaters, so I had to wait for the Voodoo rental. And I saw it last week, uh, from top to bottom, and I thought it was a fascinating movie. I mean, I, I'm not going to sugarcoat it at all. I really loved it. I thought it was great. It actually inspired me to go back and watch um, 
the original Wicker Man movie, which have you ever seen the original Wicker Man? I have, and there's definitely a pretty clear connection between those two, and uh, and it definitely kind of deepens my appreciation of that. And I thought Midsummer was really great. I was one of the very few people in the world, I think, who didn't really like Hereditary. I was not as impressed with it. I mean, people were seeing that at Sundance, saying it was the scariest movie they'd ever seen, and I saw it in a theater a couple of months later, and I was like, it was okay. It was pretty ah! well made. <laughs> Yeah, because after I after I watched uh, Midsummer, I I uh, went back and watched Hereditary for a second time, and I liked it even more. Um, I don't know if it was just because I was studying some of the mechanics of the filmmaker, or just appreciating more of his craft, uh, the performances, the the cinematography. I am really excited about both of those movies, and um, it's just great to see. Um, modern horror films coming out at that like quality level but yeah i just couldn't stop thinking about the wicker man so i also watched that and then the other uh filmmaker i've really been interested in lately is jordan peele um obviously get out many people have seen and i i thought it was a brilliant film um us have you seen us yet I have seen Us, and uh, I, I will tell you I have my problems with that movie. I think it's narratively not quite as strong as Get Out is, but uh, as a director, I think Jordan Peele is unbelievable, and mm-hmm. his his screenplay for Get Out is just outstanding, and, and I think really does some things that I hadn't really seen in anything since, uh, I mean, it's, it's like basically modern Rod Serling. And then, weirdly enough, he went on to do his own Twilight Zone remake, which I haven't seen a lot of yet and I haven't heard a lot of good things about. But I remember seeing Get Out and thinking, like, this guy is our Rod Serling, and I'm so happy that we have one. He's uh, definitely one of my favorite writers and favorite um, TV people. But yeah, Us is... Uh, it's it's really scary for about half of the movie, and then it just sort of does this thing plot-wise that I really don't think makes a lot of sense, and it takes me out of it a little bit. Well, I'm going to have to share with you this article I found. It's hilarious because the headline of the article said something to the effect of, is Jordan Peele the new John Carpenter? And I was like, wow, that's that's a um, that's an interesting analysis there. But it was a good article and it got into the depth, the different layers of the movie and the, the social commentary stuff that I just couldn't see the first time I saw it. But uh, Ari Aster and jo- Jordan Peele are two filmmakers that I've, been really into considering they both only have two movies under their belt at this point and both of them I believe are really high caliber films yeah um, I mean there does seem to be a little bit of a resurgence in like good quality horror movies that's happening lately I'm a big fan of Ty West uh, particularly his um, I'm not sure if it's his debut actually but I think it is the house of the devil I know we've talked about that movie before which is I think has a very carpenter-esque aesthetic in, uh, in some of the things that it does and it's set in the 80s and just has this bonkers really bravura third act that I like a lot and um <laughs> i also I went, you made me watch that movie and i loved it <laughs> oh yeah that movie's outstanding i i think i'm actually going to see that one again this year i think i want to add that to my halloween list um i also had a few people over to watch the movie banshee chapter i think you've seen that one also right did i recommend that oh, one to you? yes banshee chapter remind me what banshee chapter is about because i know i've seen it uh, Banshee Chapter is the one that takes into account the CIA's MK Ultra experiments, and one yes! of the characters is like basically Hunter S. Thompson and everything but the name Hunter S. Thompson, <laughs> and uh, he's played by Ted Levine, who of course was Buffalo Bill from Silence of the Lambs, and this movie is just, it's fucking terrifying. I mean, it's, it's one of the scariest modern horror movies I think I've 
ever seen. And Mm -hmm. I'm not sure exactly what it is about it. Um, It definitely gets into some real things. Like I said, uh, MKUltra and those number stations like that you can find on shortwave radios, which people still haven't really figured out what those are. These like weird radio broadcasts of people reading numbers and weird snippets of music and stuff. And it's got a real Lovecrafty angle to it, too. And I just think it's, uh, you know, as far as recent horror movies, it's one of the best that I've seen. And uh, I just love to discover a, a hidden gem like that i think even more john carpenter-esque might be the void which was another movie you turned me on to i really love the void and it's definitely carpenter inspired this is a i believe it's a canadian film collective called astron six they had done a few things before this i think this has been their biggest most high profile movie to date and man i mean that that was an experience i saw it in a very very small theater there was only like two other people in there besides us and just everything about that movie the sound design the visuals um there's a a moment in that movie where the characters are they basically have to rescue someone who's down in the basement of this hospital facility and there's all kinds of weird supernatural alien stuff going on (laughs) and i remember that moment uh just sitting in the theater thinking oh please don't go down there like like i don't usually have those thoughts during a horror movie it's like yeah get to the good stuff and with this one is like oh i don't know if i'm prepared to see that so um that is just how under my skin that movie got and uh it is it's a little over the top i mean it's not the most sort of serious grounded horror movie but it definitely it goes to some really fascinating places it almost reminds me of like a a silent hill video game or something like that or at least when those used to be good that like really just sort of visceral fear that that just sort of permeates through that whole movie and the style of it is very cool all so, hey, speaking of low-budget horror films that are awesome, <laughs> what is the film that we are talking about tonight? We are, in case our listeners have forgotten, because we've gotten a little bit uh, off-topic, we've gotten on a tangent talking about uh, some some films of the season, but we are a podcast where we talk about John Carpenter's films in order, and we have just gotten to the perfect one for the month. Yes, we are going to be covering John Carpenter's 1978 Halloween um, which I believe, is this the first movie where he added the John Carpenters in front of the title of the movie, or did he did that on Assault as well? I don't think he did that on Assault and Precinct 13. Because they do it now. You yeah. know, it's John Carpenter's Assault on Precinct 13, but when it was released, I don't think that he had his name there in front. I think Halloween is the first one where he adds his name on the front. Yeah, well, I mean, it's for, for someone that early in his career, and, and this film just completely blows up, I mean, it's uh, supposedly one of the most profitable independent movies ever made. Um, yeah, I mean, even this early on, he can kind of call himself an auteur, and that's one of the reasons why we're talking about him, right? Like, this is a guy who just makes his mark really early, leaves a stamp on things, and, you know, already he's made a cult classic and then uh halloween is is i think even more than a cult classic right it's just sort of a bona fide across the board money maker movie that's been rebooted remade talked about i mean he creates one of the iconic characters in all of horror here and um we have a whole lot to talk about when it comes to this movie as as might be obvious so we're actually going to break it up into two episodes so we're going to go a little bit big picture this time around and then next time we're going to just sort of get really down and dirty with this movie 
and talk about individual scenes and just sort of great iconic moments and all the little touches that make this so much better than the slasher film that it that generally gets lumped in with. So I don't know. Um, I think we've talked a lot, but I'm ready to, to launch into a discussion of this one. We will be right back with the first part of our discussion on Halloween. I spent eight years trying to reach him and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. I think he'll come back. All right, we are back, and I thought one way I'd like to kick off this discussion is, Chris, when did you actually see this movie the first time? Oh, God, I knew you were going to ask me that question, and I can't pinpoint it. But I remember being probably nine or ten years old and, you know, would go trick-or-treating and then come home. And my parents were cool enough to, like, let me get set up in the living room and just, like, I would watch scary movies, you know, and eat my candy and stuff like that. And being a child of the 80s, this was a movie that was on all the time. So... I couldn't tell you exactly when the first time was I saw it, but I know I was really young, and I remember that that was the setting. It was perfect. It was like a Halloween night as a kid. I can't even imagine a better way to have seen this movie the first time. (laughs) So you're just coming home from trick-or-treating, surrounded by candy. You're on a sugar high. You're staying up past your bedtime, and this is the movie that's on TV. That's amazing. Yeah. Like, I don't have a story at all. Like, I think I saw this... A lot later than I should have, actually. Like, this was not a franchise that I grew up with. I had seen, like, all the the Nightmare on Elm Streets and all the Friday the 13th movies. And, you know, I think one of the things that's kind of fascinating about Halloween is that this is so culturally relevant that even if you've never seen this movie, even if you know basically (laughs) nothing about what actually happens in the movie, you know who Michael Myers is. You know what this movie's about. You know that Jamie Lee Curtis is the star of it. So I think... Because it was so ubiquitous and because I I basically, it was one of those things where I felt like I just understood it so much that I didn't really need to see it, that I didn't see it till I was probably like, you know, late, late teens or early 20s or something like that. Wow. And I went so long, like I might have even seen like some of the sequels and and some of the remakes before I saw the original. And so you had the perfect experience of seeing this for the first time. And I had maybe the worst possible experience. Uh, Well, I shouldn't say the worst, right? I wasn't like watching it on an airplane or something like that. I did get to see it at home with the lights down and my usual horror movie thing. But uh, yeah, I wish I had gotten to it a little bit sooner, but I will say that even that first time I saw it, I realized just how important this movie is and you know you can say what you want i mean i like i said i i really enjoy particularly the original friday the 13th the 1980 uh original that doesn't even feature jason Voorhees, except for one scene that i like a lot um We've talked about Nightmare on Elm Street. Those movies are great, but I think Halloween is is so much better made and so much better, I guess, better directed and, and just sort of more of a piece with itself than those other movies are. And there's part of me that sees those films now as just sort of part of these franchises that I had a lot of fun with. And I think this one just stands alone so much better. Yeah, and talk about a film that, couldn't have been titled better for the longevity aspect. I I read somewhere earlier that this movie was originally going to be called The Babysitter Killings or something like that. And um, I don't know if it was the producer or Carpenter himself. Somebody found out that, you know, the the title, 
Halloween as a holiday had never been used for a film before. So they just snagged the rights to it. And um, here we are 40 years later. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, actually, we should talk about that a little bit. I mean, particularly uh, this episode where we're going to cover kind of what the movie is and uh, and where it came from. And like I said, kind of the big picture stuff. And this is a collaboration writing wise between John Carpenter and Deborah Hill, who worked in a, a smaller capacity on Assault on Precinct 13. Yes. Um, they were romantically involved at the time. And this became a, a really productive partnership, almost like what he had with Dan O'Bannon when he was a college student, when he was making Dark Star. But yeah, the original concept for this was basically a movie about a babysitter being stalked and killed. We're talking, so this is mid-70s when when this project is first being kicked around. Uh, Erwin Yablins was the producer, and Mustafa Akkad, who ended up basically being the financier behind the entire Halloween series. Yes. Um, they got involved really early on. They had seen Assault on Precinct 13, and they knew basically at that point that John Carpenter was a guy who can make a really well-made and suspenseful and shocking genre film on a very, very, very small budget with kind of an unknown cast. And they saw a little bit of a cash cow there, I think. Like, here's a guy that we don't have to pay very much who can make a movie for a very small amount of money, and potentially this movie could make a ton of money. Yeah, and I had read that, um, first of all, Carpenter's moving up in the world, right? We had the, the Dark Star budget, you know, at, what was the Dark Star budget? I don't even remember. But uh, uh, It was a, a, a five-figure budget, I know that. Yeah, and then Assault on Precinct 13 couldn't have been more than $100,000. Yes, so, Assault was hey, about 100000 This was 300000 so, uh, yeah, He's moving up. Yeah, he tripled up, which is still <laughs> not much. Well, there was uh, a quote that I read. I, I don't remember where I saw it, but I think, uh, you know, Akkad had made some, like, historical epic kind of movies and was working with people like Anthony Quinn, like these big-name Hollywood stars. I mean, they were kind of fading at the time in, in the late 70s, but still, he's making these large-scale, like, world movies and... And, you know, I think the quote was, I have uh, another movie that I'm producing right now where we spend $300,000 a day on this film. A day, yeah. And, and Halloween is a film that you can do the entire thing for $300,000. And it doesn't look cheap at all. I mean, one of the things I think is really great about this movie is, although it is gritty and although it is somewhat low budget, it looks fantastic. I mean, it's shot in Panavision again. You've got this beautiful widescreen cinematography. Um, another mm. really important collaborator here. So uh, John Carpenter and Deborah Hill write the screenplay. I want to talk a little bit about that. But um, the, this unsung hero, if there is one of this film, is Dean Cundy, who is the cinematographer. Um, I think this movie is absolutely beautifully shot. I think the lighting in this movie is perfect. The atmosphere that's conjured up in this movie is as good as any horror movie I've ever seen, going back to the classic universal horrors and everything. I mean, just sort of watching this again, I, I watch it almost every year now, and uh, seeing it again just to talk about it for the show, like I'm always just struck with how good the cinematography is. And one of the reasons I think that is is because his model, Kundi has said, is the movie Chinatown, which is... Is, uh, another really beautifully shot movie, another one of my huh. favorite films, and the other genre I like a lot, which is film noir, uh, that came out in 1974 and just has this amazing, just very polished look to it. This is also the era of films like The Godfather and Gordon Willis with that beautiful darkness of his cinematography and the interiors, that sort of burnished interior lighting. 
And, you know, Halloween is a movie made by fairly young people. They all have credits at this point and, and some very good credits, but the polish and the professionalism in this movie, I think, is, is just off the charts. I mean, it's outstanding for what it is. And even those who didn't like it, right, like, uh, you know, Pauline Kael famously trashed this movie. But even those who were detractors of it, they had to come back and be like, well, yeah, it's well made. It looks really good. <laughs> Yeah, well, to comment on that, I read somewhere that they spent nearly half the budget on just the cameras for the movie. And if if you look at, um, you know, what some of the the uh, actors got paid in this movie, you know, that Jamie Lee Curtis gets eight thousand dollars, Donald Pleasance gets gets a check for twenty grand, and there were some folks that were offered roles that declined them that later on went to say it was like the biggest mistakes of their career because of how legendary and epic this movie would end up becoming. Uh, yeah, I, I believe it was Christopher Lee or Peter Cushing, one of those old school British horror guys that like if you're making a horror movie and you can get him, that's a huge <laughs> thing. And and yeah, they didn't want to do it. And I forget which one of them it was, but but there was a lot of regret afterward. Like you could have been part of a horror classic. You wouldn't have gotten paid much for it, but just to have your face in it, I think would have been uh, a cool thing. Yeah. And by the way, I, I would like to mention the uh, $300,000 budget. Um, I don't know what the math on that is by today's standards, but I guess we could do a quick calculate. That's that's probably close to a million dollars today, maybe, because $47 million this movie makes at the box office, which I've read is equivalent to over $150 million today. Um, so, yeah, it is absolutely one of the most profitable um, low-budget movies or, or, you know, I mean, the profit margin made on this movie was ridiculous for the time. Um, yeah, and it really proves, I mean, not that this was the first film to do it, right? Like, there, there was always low-budget horror. Horror is always a genre where if you're a director who's just starting out, you don't have a lot of money, you want to get it in front of a lot. I mean, you know, horror was... I think the domain of the kind of teenage audience during the drive-in era that, that Carpenter grew up in and stuff like that. And he had definitely seen how you could do that, right? Like spend a five-figure budget and make a movie that, you know, you can uh, you can be making out with your date at the drive-in and look up every once in a while when something scary happens. I mean, it's definitely in that exploitation tradition. This is coming a few years after, like, Last House on the Left, yeah, which was a movie that similarly had a very, very small budget and made a lot of money because it was just a really intense and really shocking horror film. Ugh. But that's a tough one. Were you, I, I, were you going to say something about Last House and Life? I just I'm a sick enough person where I've seen it more than once. I don't know if I ever desire to see it again. But, uh, man, the ending really pays off every time. It's it's just... Uh... Yeah, it does. I mean, I, I, I am a fan of that movie. I think it's a very good film. It's not as good as this no. one. I, I always sort of... When, when, when I'm watching movies from this era, I always imagine myself as, as a moviegoer at that mm. time, right? Like, you know, we're all so jaded now, and we've all, we've all seen so many movies. And if you want a low-budget horror flick in 2019, you just fire up Amazon Prime, and you've got thousands of them there. <laughs> and, and literally, the range of quality is like the worst crap you've ever seen to, you know, a, a hidden gem, something like a Banshee chapter, like we were talking about mm -hmm. before. 
So I'm sure it was like that back then, but there was less choice of movies. So you'd just be sort of showing up to the drive-in and and who knows what you were going to get. And I feel like when you got something really, really good like this, when you got a movie like Halloween that can leave an impression, that must have been really something back then, right? Like because, you know, the film criticism, like you couldn't just go on the internet and read reviews of every horror, like, you know, here's the 10 scariest horror movies ever made and stuff like that. So you'd sort of stumble across it rather than just know about it the way like maybe I did when I saw Halloween. I, I still think the way that you saw it was better. Yeah, and I wish that that's really at the heart of the matter of one thing that I would like to address on this show is, you know, there's no way to unsee all the other Halloween movies. There's no way to unsee everything that, you know, was influenced by this film. And I think that 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 speaks to what you were talking about with just kind of being jaded by everything that we have access to nowadays. I mean, trying to put ourselves in the mind frame of the audience watching this movie in a theater in 1978. Um, as far as everything I can gather and from everything I've I've seen personally, this was like the biggest slasher, we'll call it a slasher movie, to come along since Hitchcock's Psycho. And... Um, that I never knew all these years. I think it was just until a year ago or so I found out that Jamie Lee Curtis was Janet Lee's daughter. And I never made that connection. And when I did, I was like, man, that is such a cool uh, homage or such a cool tribute to, to Janet Lee's character and her, her iconic role in Psycho to take her daughter and, and have her as the lead character in Halloween. Yeah, it's, uh, it's the first family of slasher movies, at least at that time. Right, right. Um, but yeah, I, I think you bring up a good point because this movie, I, I wish I could transport myself back in time to see it because when you watch it now and especially after seeing it a bunch of times, like there's no question. I think similarly to the pacing in, in certain parts of Assault on Precinct 13, that, you know, this movie is slow. Like it takes its time. It, it builds and the music has so much to do with it. Like now we have all these stingers and uh, you know, movies just packed with action from beginning to end. This this movie is pretty much a slow burn all the way through. Um, you know, it's funny that you say that because I a hundred percent disagree with that. <laughs> really? Yeah, I mean, I, it's it's interesting to me because I've seen a ton of slasher movies and I feel like a lot of them start out really slow. And so I always mm. expect Halloween to do that. Like one thing that I really love about this movie is I feel like it's endlessly rewatchable because although, you know, even probably before I saw it, I knew exactly what it was. The concept is really simple. But watching it this time, I was struck by just how many scary moments there are in like the first 15, 20 minutes of it that I didn't remember at all. Um, you know, just off the top of my head. So when uh, when Laurie Strode early on in the film, and I don't want to get too much into plot this time around. We can definitely talk about that on the next episode. But there's a moment where she's just dropping off a key at the Myers residence uh, that has mm. not been sold in all these years since the pivotal murder happened there and she drops the key on the porch and we've got this shot looking out at her from inside the house through these grimy looking windows in the door and Michael Myers is there he just sort of pops into frame we get one of the great stingers you mentioned stingers and that uh, that high-pitched synthesizer thing that that Carpenter <laughs> does here that it's so awesome that one is oh, so perfect 
<laughs> we get a, I know. a little bit of that there and we just kind of see him a little bit like half in silhouette and it scared the crap out of me and like I've seen this movie dozens of times and for some reason I just forgot about that particular scare and it's like 10 minutes into the movie less than that I think it's like five or six minutes into the movie so um you know in some ways you're right I mean there is some setup here there is uh the pacing of the first act and and part of the second act are a little bit slow but there are definitely moments that uh, that I think are really frightening and really captivating even early on I okay fair enough I will agree with that maybe I didn't uh word it correctly but i do think that i guess just compared to some of the more boombastic films that are out now or more of the um you know the gore fest movies i mean there's hardly any blood if any blood in this movie at all and um you know the 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 scares certainly are amplified i think by john carpenter's brilliant score which which by the way we have to talk about i mean the music in in his theme for Assault on Precinct 13 is great. We talked about that a little bit on the last episode. It's still a score that I'd like to add to my collection. This movie really takes the cake for me as far as scores are concerned. I mean, that, you know, 5-4 timing piano melody um, with the really uh, just dark synth and heavily reverberated pianos. I love the music in this movie so much, and I'm so glad that the movie is just chock full of it. I mean, music is playing in at least 50% of this movie. Um, if not more than that. And I think it just, the marriage between the, the music and the cinematography in this is pretty tough to beat. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it, it really nicely suits the character. Like it's almost like Michael Myers theme. And we get a lot of this subjective camera in this movie. Like we see a lot of this story unfold through Michael Myers, eyes and the combination of that particularly, like, I, I do think the music really suits the cinematography well. And, you know, I, I was it Assault on Precinct 13? I think it was. Or maybe it was Dark Star. I was talking about how, you know, each character kind of had a little musical motif of their own. That might have even been Dark Star. I was, I was talking about that about. And certainly Michael Myers has that here. And it, it becomes so ubiquitous, like almost like you were saying, there's so much music in this movie. And it's true. So that when there's a quiet moment later on, that's really unsettling, too, because we're so used to sort of hearing this theme and knowing that that is signaling that something suspenseful is going to happen. And so once that's established, then you can also play a little, around a little bit with the absence of it and how creepy that can be also. I mean, this is, you know, we keep bringing up Psycho, and I think that's definitely an influence on this. But uh, I mean, as far as the direction of this movie goes, I'm not going to say that it is Hitchcock level, but it, it approaches Hitchcock level in a number of ways. I mean, the way Carpenter crafts some of these stalking scenes and suspense scenes, the way he uses the frame, it's really expert level stuff. And I think, you know, this inspired a lot of other movies like there had been slasher films before Halloween. There obviously were a ton of them in the 80s and afterward. Friday the 13th was another low budget movie that was a huge, huge hit also. But those movies kind of doubled down on the gore and the sex and the um, just sort of the shock and the titillation of it. And not many of them were, were capable of sort of crafting these amazing suspense sequences the way Halloween was. Like it would have been cool, you know, an alternate history of slasher films 
films, I guess, where the thing that that those filmmakers did was really just study how these scenes work here and the way Carpenter blocks things out and the way he keeps Michael Myers in frame a lot. Like one of the things I love about this movie, I'm a long take guy. Um, You and I hosted a podcast for a while called The Long Take. And although, you know, I'm a big fan of editing and I think editing can really do some amazing things in a horror film also. I mean, some of the greatest shocks in cinema came via editing. Um, I love long takes. I really love to just sort of let the camera observe the scene and let you, the viewer, pick out what is important to see there. And Mm. just thinking about some of the early scenes in this movie, like where where Laurie Strode is looking out the window of her high school classroom and Michael Myers is standing across the street. You know, it's a very, very wide shot. It's kind of a long take. And we don't even see him at first, right? We see the station wagon. And then if you look right above that, well, there's that white mask. There's his face. And it's really, I think, terrifying. And it's not a shock cut, you know? It's uh, like the shock comes from when you, the viewer, see him in that shot not the cut from her eyes the eye line match between her and that reverse shot where he's across the street there so you know again i think the tendency for a young filmmaker a tendency for an experienced filmmaker is just sort of jump scares shocks you know an edit that comes out of nowhere and and you know it's a cat in the closet or something like that and this movie uses space and uses time i think a lot more maturely and a lot more professionally than that and you know that's how this really gets under your skin yes and um i wanted to talk about some of the um repeat collaborators here in this movie because as we get further and further into john carpenter's filmography we we get a lot of these collaborators um one right off the bat is nancy keys who again is casted as nancy loomis or not casted as nancy loomis but she's acting under her acting name alias is Nancy Loomis as Annie. Still don't know what the connection is to that um, as far as Donald Pleasance's character is obviously Dr. Loomis. Um, What do you think the point of that is? Is it just playing with us or because she's also Nancy Loomis in Assault on Precinct 13, correct? Yes, she's credited. Yeah, so the actress is Nancy Keys. She's credited as Nancy Loomis. And, you know, seeing Assault on Precinct 13 and being a Halloween fan, you you think, oh, that's a familiar name. And this movie, he actually is in this film. So, um, I, I, I mean, I, I don't know that there's anything to that other than John Carpenter just likes the sound of that name. I mean, sometimes <laughs> when I'm writing, I just sort of like the way something sounds. So I just kind of keep using it. So I don't know. It's, it's kind of a cool name, I guess. It, uh, you know, Loomis, like looming, like it's uh, kind of suspenseful sounding maybe. Yeah. And I only wanted to bring it up because it's something that, that comes up a lot more later on, but like very similarly to how Carpenter credited himself as John T. Chance for, uh, what credit was that for in, in Assault? Uh, as that's his editor credit. His editor credit. Thank you. Is John T. Chance. So it, maybe I should do some more research on that, but I just find that really interesting how Nancy Loomis is playing Annie and Donald Pleasance is playing Loomis. Um, we get Charles Cyphers is back again as a police officer in this movie. I watching it this time, I for some reason I thought he was in this movie a little bit more, but he's not really. He's uh he, he's kind of I think he has about the same amount of screen time in this movie as he has in Assault, maybe a little bit more. 
Um, but he well, ends he up being die so quickly in this one. That's true. He doesn't die. He doesn't perish as soon in, <laughs> in this movie or, or perish at all. But um, yeah, he ends up playing a police officer in like five John Carpenter movies or something. I find that interesting. Yeah, very different police officer this time around. Um, he looks younger to me in this movie than he does in Assault on Precinct 13. Maybe he was just having a, a rough go of 1976, but uh, he looks like he's a little bit more in shape and his hair looks a little bit less gray here. And uh, I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's sort of a, a weird de-aging thing that happens uh, between... Carpenter's previous movie and this one with Charles Savers. <laughs> I think he's very good in this one. Um, so we've got them. Deborah Hill, who worked in, in the design, I believe, department on Assault and Precinct 13, now gets bumped up to sort of collaborating writer. And actually, she was the babysitter. Uh, she was working when she was a teenager as a babysitter. So a lot of the, the teenage babysitter character dialogue comes from her. And Dean Cundy, who is the great cinematographer of this movie, goes on to shoot basically all the Carpenter classics in the years to come. He's a cinematographer of Escape from New York and The Thing and Big Trouble in Little China. So you've wow. got the start of some amazing partnerships here. Tommy Lee Wallace works on this movie, Carpenter's film school collaborator, who ends up going on to direct the third film in this series, which uh, we may end up talking about on this show at some point. So, yeah, I mean, he's kind of assembled this real stable of talent. He's got his key themes at this point. And, you know, he's even got his little quirks, like you were saying, like this name Loomis that uh, that he just seems to like a lot. So here's my question for you, because this is bothering me to no end. I have to know. So Tony, uh, is it Moran? Moran? Tony Moran, yeah. Or Moran. Okay, he is credited as Michael Myers, age 23. Right? Yes. Nick, Nick Castle is credited as The Shape. Yes. Please explain to me what that is because I am I always thought that The Shape was Michael Myers. I don't understand the difference. I am not sure I 100% get this, and I've read it in so many different places, and, and still, you know, there are questions that I have about it also, but to the best of my understanding, the shape is Michael Myers with his mask on. So all the stalk and kill scenes where we just see him in wide shots and things like that, that is Nick Castle with the mask on, just sort of doing his thing. Um, there's a moment where he kind of observes one of his kills that's talked about a lot. That is Nick Castle there. But when he takes the mask off and and that's another thing that i always forget is that we actually do see him as an adult with the mask off for a yes, few for seconds one in second. this movie yep. and i believe that is tony moran there so um for whatever reason nick castle just did not have the face to play this psychotic possibly supernatural killer so that is his uh his performance is the moments where we see him with the mask off there might be more than that like you know if he got paid that well he probably did a little bit more than that but um you know if you look at a picture of, of Nicholas Guest, he doesn't have the scariest looking face. He kind of he's a little genial and friendly looking like he looks like a guy you could sit down and have a beer with. Whereas Tony Moran, I think, is just a little bit more, you know, inscrutable looking. Not that he's a scary looking guy. He's actually a, a pretty handsome actor, but he's got a face that's a little more. Oh, I wonder what that guy's up to. <laughs> well, it looks like Nick Castle's moving up in the world because he went from being the uncredited alien in Dark Star to the shape in this movie. Um, and, and then I was looking at some of his other credits. I mean, he was a he was a writer on Escape from New York and also plays the shape in the most recent Halloween movie, 
um, 2018. So I thought that was very cool of them to throw him that bone. I mean, he's obviously a lot older now, but uh, but you know, still got a little bit of that old Michael Myers mojo left in him. God, I can't believe he directed Mr. Wrong. <laughs> that, yeah, how how like, is that even possible? His career in Carpenter's kind of diverge a lot over the years, and uh, and he goes to make these very sort of mainstream Hollywood comedies, and, and Carpenter basically sticks to the plan and kind of continues with the genre films for uh, you know as long as he's been working. So let's go right. back a little bit because we had kind of started talking about this before and we never really finished the conversation. So um, the producers of this film, they've come up with a concept about uh, basically someone stalking babysitters because obviously, you know, you could cast some hot young teenage actresses in that. And it's obviously a very exploitable, very marketable concept. And then... Um, like you were saying, no one had ever really made a Halloween movie before. So nothing with this title. So you can basically take the title of the holiday and take the concept of the holiday of Halloween and, and spin a movie around that. So they basically decided to sort of graft this babysitter idea onto the idea of Halloween. Um, Carpenter and Deborah Hill basically start working on the screenplay, write it very quickly. Carpenter is given a very, very small... I believe it's something like $10,000, but he's also given essentially full creative control over this project. So once the producers throw him this concept, he's like, yeah, I will absolutely do that, but I want to do it my way. And so he and Deborah Hill just sort of put their heads together and come up with the entire backstory of Michael Myers and create these characters and basically put together... I mean, like I said, I think it's a very, very simple story, and I really like that about it. And as I was saying with Assault on Precinct 13, there's no fat here, right? There's no bullshit. This movie gets right to the point. There's not a lot of extraneous characters. I believe only six, uh, five or six characters get killed in the course of this movie. So the body count is much lower. The set of characters is much smaller than you'd expect. I mean, they create this really nice kind of small town milieu here. And really, we get to know... Lori, we kind of get to know her father, a few of her friends, a few of their their romantic partners, the police officer who is the father of one of her friends. I mean, it's a very small cast. We see some little kids running around and stuff like that. Like they really, I don't know, I, I feel like Haddonfield, Illinois feels like a real place. These feel like real people. And there's not a lot of sort of manufactured Hollywood drama like even when Brackett pulls over his daughter and Laurie in the car, and they are very obviously smoking some weed in that car, they roll down the window, there's absolutely no way that he couldn't smell it, and either he just has better things to do, or he doesn't care. Like, in a lot of movies, that would be a, a real source of conflict, right? And, and we'd have to, like, deal with some drama about this character and her father, and, and sort of what their relationship is like, but no, actually, he's just kind of chill, and uh, they seem to get along pretty good, and you know, she's a teenage girl, so she's a little little snarky with him but that's about it i mean they, they seem like they have a pretty good family Lori, we don't get to know much about her family we do know that she's um uh she finds the or, or i'm sorry the the boys at school think she's too smart that's her assessment of uh why she doesn't have a boyfriend so there's a little bit of romantic drama that goes on with her but otherwise you know she's a fairly well-adjusted person she's a good responsible babysitter um you know she's got uh some real uh some some child rearing skills obviously but she's the best babysitter in the world are you kidding me yeah she's she doing takes amazing care of those kids yeah, she's reading to them she's watching movies she's making popcorn she's doing the jack-o'-lantern 
uh, as you said, she's doing the child rearing. I mean, yeah, her character is is she's the uh, she even says at one point in the movie the uh, the Girl Scout saves the day again or something like that. Yeah, know? I mean, she she really is a Girl Scout, and almost everyone in this movie, you know, I mean, they're teenagers, so yeah, there's some drinking and drugs and sex and stuff like that. But you know, it's it's not sort of taken to that over the top dramatic place that a lot of movies like this might. And um, I think that's one of the things that really helps you empathize with these characters and feel like this is a real place and really just sort of feel that fear because they don't feel like Hollywood caricatures of teenagers. They feel like teenagers, you know, like these are people that I would have hung out with in my high school days. And uh, and that's one of the things yeah. I really like about it. Well, and Donald Pleasance, man, who obviously when this movie was made was the biggest uh, name that was going to be part of it. Um, you know, as I mentioned before, he got he got paid a higher salary than everybody else. Donald Pleasance. I thought of when I was watching this movie this time around, something that you had said before in Assault on Precinct 13, we were talking about how one of the mechanisms that Carpenter uses a lot in his movies is kind of making a hero out of the underdog. And I never thought of Dr. Loomis as an underdog character really before until I watched it this time. And um, man, I just love him in this movie. You know, I, I, I love how he has such a deeper like connection and understanding to Michael Myers and basically nobody's really trying to hear what he's saying or they just think he's exaggerating, um, you know, a little bit too much. Haddonfield, Illinois is a safe place. Why do we have to worry about this uh, sort of thing? But Donald Pleasance would uh, end up being in John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness as well. And also Escape from New York. I think those are the only other two he did. Um, but he did return to play Dr. Loomis in, I think, Halloween 2, 4, 5, and 6. Uh, I think 6 is the one. He actually passed away, I think, during the filming of that movie. Um, but what a classic character. I mean, it's it's just wonderful. Yeah, he is. And and really kind of interesting. Like, he spends a lot of this movie just standing around and waiting. And yeah. so, <laughs> I mean, if you think of the protagonist of a, a horror movie or any movie, right? Like, you know, the two heroes of this movie are Loomis and Laurie Strode. Laurie doesn't know that anything bad is happening until, like, 20 minutes before the end of the movie or something like that. Like until she discovers her friends having been murdered, um, you know, there's some ominous signs and, uh, and this little kid she's babysitting keeps saying he's seeing the boogeyman and she kind of doesn't believe him. And so she's like, not really a part of the Michael Myers story until very late in this movie. And although Loomis has been with him all along, he spends most of the movie, I mean, I guess we could say looking for him, but he's not even really looking for him, right? He's just <laughs> waiting around for him to show up because that's all he can do. And yeah, you know, trying to convince the other characters that this is a real threat and, you know, something evil beyond your imagining is here in your little quiet, sleepy California town that is trying to pass as Illinois, not particularly convincingly, but... um yeah, there's some palm trees in there. If there are definitely carefully. palm trees in the back of shots. But uh, Loomis is, you know, he's kind of an inactive character. I mean, he's doing what he can. It's not his fault. He's, uh, I, I do think he's a sympathetic hero. But unfortunately, you know, he, he doesn't have a lot to do. And, you know, you were saying that uh, there's 
like one of his goals is to convince everyone of of kind of how serious this threat is. And one of the things I think is kind of cool about this movie is they don't necessarily believe the extent of it, but they do kind of at least humor him like, uh, you know, Brackett, the police officer that, that we see here. He's not totally disbelieving of of Loomis, and it's not like a Jaws thing where where the mayor of Amity and Jaws is like, oh no, just let people go to the beach, it's fine, no one's gonna get eaten by a shark, right? <laughs> like in this movie, right. Brackett seems to care a little bit more about the people of this town and the the safety of his children and everybody's children, and so even though you know he, he doesn't seem to quite register like how evil Michael Myers actually is, um, they do know that Michael Myers as a kid killed his sister and and was committed to an insane asylum so you know there is a little bit of understanding of of what can go down and you know like that's not a sort of a source of manufactured drama either right like it's not like well loomis is running around like a crazy person saying michael myers is on the loose and nobody believes him it's just that they're waiting for him you know almost as much as loomis is yeah, he's he he gets kind of uh, fatigued with what he calls his you know fancy talk or whatever. He does he does entertain Loomis and and go to the Myers house and you know where they find uh, is that supposed to be a dead dog in there that they find because they don't actually show it. Yeah, they don't, which is a nice moment of restraint. I hate seeing dogs die in movies, although one does in this. I know one that's later a... <laughs> on. But uh, yeah, I know what I was gonna say. Yeah, it it seems like he's dragged um, some some kind of dead animal in there and eaten it. Um, you know, like it's uh, like he's wow cut it up and eaten it or something like that. And it's a really well directed scene because all you get is their reaction to it. You don't actually see what they are looking at, but they're both such good actors, Charles Cyphers and Donald Pleasance that um, we can just imagine how horrific that grew that's strewn all over the floor actually is. I really like Charles Cyphers. You're going to love him in the fog. Um, I wanted to point out what I thought, what I think I should say is one of the most badass parts of this whole movie and it's the most subtle thing and you really wouldn't appreciate it unless you know that John Carpenter ended up directing the thing but man I never really I have never appreciated it as much as when I saw when the kids are watching the movies and it shows the old TV and it says a Howard Hawks film and then the thing just comes the thing logo comes onto the TV how fortuitous is that I mean that is such a badass thing to do in your career at that point and be like, you know what? I'm actually going to remake that movie. Like, you know, four years from now or whatever. Uh, I, <laughs> you, I just think that's do you think such you had a, that in mind the whole time. It's impossible. There's no way, right? Like he would have to be seeing so far into the future. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe he had that inspiration and those ideas to, to remake that movie. But of course, it's something that looking back at it now with everything we know, that's just so cool that that's in this movie. Yeah, I mean, we've said that on the show before, right? Like John Carpenter is not a guy who's shy about his influences. He's not one of those directors who kind of haughtily says, well, you know, I, I, I'm i a complete original. And yes, I've seen some films, but uh, but this is just totally me. Like he is a huge Howard Hawks fan. He just remade a Howard Hawks movie with Assault in Precinct 13. And he's paying tribute again and again. I mean, he, he very openly acknowledges his influences and actually I, I think the way the thing is used in this movie is really effective like he takes some some really kind of 
mysterious looking moments from that film uh like i i think i saw halloween before i saw the original version of this the thing i'd seen his version of the thing but i had not seen the howard hawks version and so he takes these clips of it and the kids that are being babysat they're watching it and um the moments that he selects from that movie to actually use as kind of counterpoint to what's happening in his movie i think they really effectively help build the suspense a little bit like there's that shot where the uh you know the the characters in that film they're measuring the size of the craft that they found under the ice and it's this really stark white shot and you see these these guys kind of standing around this like depression in the ice out in the arctic and the music is kind of swelling a little bit there and um i don't know i just i think it really nicely adds to the the suspenseful mood of that scene and i don't know if i would let a kid i was babysitting that that was that age watch that howard hawks movie i mean it's an older movie but it's pretty creepy for what it is yeah, it throws some uh, <laughs> it throws some flying saucers in there as well. Um, but yeah, I just again, it it's never hit me that way before because you know it wasn't until recently when I started really studying John Carpenter's work and, and stuff like that that I just seeing it this time I was like, man, that is so cool and just so badass uh, to be like, hey, by the way, now that I've made the thing, if you go back and watch Halloween, uh, <laughs> I don't know. Um, well, like directors always have a dream project, right? Like, you know, everyone in film school is like, okay, well, I'm going to make my student films. I'll make shorts. I hopefully, you know, the, the very lucky ones, they get to make low budget movies. But I think everyone who's ever picked up a camera is like, man, if someone would just give me a few million dollars, this is the thing that I want to (laughs) do. The thing that I want to do. No pun intended. Sorry, Chris. (laughs) but like i guarantee that john carpenter when he's a a young guy at usc and and working on things like dark star he's thinking maybe maybe someday like a a wild pipe dream you know and and, in my ideal world someone will actually bankroll a remake of the thing and let me direct it and you know when you're as good as john carpenter sometimes dreams do come true Yes, and also another thing I learned this time around, which I think is worth mentioning, is um, I never knew that PJ Souls was in Brian De Palma's Carrie. Yep. But I read that in the trivia, and I was like, "Who the heck is that?" And then when I saw her in the movie, I immediately recognized her. Um, Carrie is—I'm not going to say one of my favorite movies, but a movie that I like very much. Um, and that pretty much wraps up the the whole cast, right? I mean, who am I missing here other than uh whoever plays Tommy um and maybe the boyfriend who gets stabbed and uh you know, he gets kind of pinned up against the wall there. It's a pretty classic scene which it's funny when I was watching that recently <laughs> you know the scene I'm talking about, right? Yeah, Obviously where Is that uh, Bob? I think that's Bob. Is it Bob? Yeah, Bob. I don't know. He, he he goes to get the beers, he's got the glasses, and he gets pinned up on the wall. And it was funny because, like, we're watching it, and my wife's like, is that even possible? <laughs> and, 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 and all I could say was, I was like, no, nah, it's not possible. And then after I thought about it, I was like, maybe it's possible. It's just not probable. <laughs> yeah, well, the physics of that scene don't really work, right? So he, uh, Michael Myers basically takes this really long knife and picks him up and pins him to the wall with it, and it doesn't look like it's sticking in far enough for it to be able to do that, and I don't know, maybe it's, like, caught on his rib cage or something. I don't know. I mean, it, the physics of it don't work, but is that not a hugely effective scene in this movie? Like, that might be the best kill in the movie. Uh, 
probably is, and it also shows us that this guy's got some kind of superhuman strength. You know, I mean, he's able to just lift this guy right off the ground, and uh, maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's his strength. Maybe he wedged that knife in there with so much force <laughs> that it, uh, it just held him in his place. Um, you know, much like the astrophysics of Dark Star, not everything in this is perfectly realistic, but uh, you know, I think in the moment it works really well. Yeah, certainly. So I, again. Low budget film ends up becoming, you know, this classic film. Another thing I love about the success story of this movie is that it it did what I would want any movie that I love to do, which is, you know, this this movie didn't come out and was like an instant blockbuster hit, right? It was a movie that came out in a few theaters, started getting some buzz, started expanding. And then just caught momentum and got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Unlike, you know, most films today where it's like, all right, this is going to come out in 3,500 theaters on opening day or whatever. This movie really just gained all of its um, stature and, and all of its classic reputation as a film just by word of mouth and by people talking about it and its popularity growing steadily. Um, and the idea that I, I can't see, I'm not a producer that has hundreds of thousands of dollars to spend on movies, but if I were, and I had a project like this, that was so massively successful critically and financially, um, you really can't blame the, the producers and the studios for forcing sequels, you know, which is something that we see a lot of, I think even more so today, or we see forced reboots. Um, and that's something that I, I hope that in the the evolution of this show, we do spend an episode or two talking about some of the other Halloween movies. Like, I would love to do an episode on Halloween 2. Um, I'd love to do an episode on Halloween 2018. And I'd like to do an episode on one of Rob Zombie's Halloween movies as well. So... So you can kind of look at it through all these different lenses and, and mythologies. But as since this is a John Carpenter podcast and we're talking about John Carpenter, uh, he really had no interest in doing the second Halloween movie. You know, he wanted to move on and make The Fog and make Escape from New York. And there was a lot of negotiating involved to even have him and Deborah Hill continue to be affiliated with the Halloween franchise in uh, – part two and three. I believe it's by the time we get to part four, he has no more affiliation with, with the franchise until the new one in 2018. Yeah. And um, I think four is where it starts to lose a lot of that original spirit. Like I, what I have read is that uh, it is Carpenter's idea to basically take Halloween two and pick up right where the original film leaves off. Cause it, it does have one of the great ambiguous endings in all of horror, right? Like Michael Myers is down and then Loomis looks into the yard where he basically just fell out a window and that would have killed any normal human being. And he's just gone. And, you know, Loomis gives him this look like, Oh, here we go again. You know, it's, uh, it's not a comedic moment exactly, but you can tell that he knows that, uh, that that was probably what he was expecting. Like as soon as you look away, he's going to be gone. And so Halloween two is, is kind of a clever sequel and that it picks up right where this one leaves off. And then Halloween three, I think is fascinating. Like I, I do hope eventually to do an episode on that. Not, because I think Tommy it's Lee. an amazing movie, but there are some things about it that I really like. And the idea with Halloween 3 
was, okay, we've got Halloween as a trademark. Let's do a series of movies that all take place and, and revolve around the Halloween season. And instead of doing another Michael Myers slasher movie, let's do a more sort of sci-fi sort of oriented story. And they were going to continue that almost like the way anthology series work now. Um, the idea was to basically put the Halloween name and, and John Carpenter as a producer on these films that just sort of use Halloween as a jumping off point. Halloween the holiday, not necessarily, not necessarily Halloween the movie. And that never really panned out, unfortunately, because people didn't like Halloween 3. So we went immediately right back to Michael Myers and started just, you know, adding all this nonsense backstory and things like that. Um, but, you know, like I was saying before, I mean, th there are a lot of franchises where I kind of just like to look at the first film as a standalone thing and this is definitely one of them I mean, I mean there are things in Halloween 2 and certainly Halloween 3 that I like a lot but to me I mean it, it sort of begins and ends with the original film here I feel that way about Rocky too like I, I think the original Rocky is such a perfect movie that um, you know the sequels are okay but like I don't think of the sequels much you know like the original Rocky tells this perfect complete story and I feel like the original Halloween the one that we're talking about now tells a very complete story it's an open-ended story it certainly ends ambiguously but like everything you need. Like, I don't want to know any more about Michael Myers than I get in this movie. I don't want to know any more about Laurie Strode than I know in this movie. You know, she has a great character arc. She has a great hero's journey. I don't want to know anything more about Loomis. Like everything that I want out of this film, I get in this one. The suspense scenes are great. The, uh, <laughs> you know, the killings I think are, are really suspensefully done and still kind of shocking. Um, the character dynamics work and, you know, I, like, of course, you know, like you were saying, obviously the reason sequels get made is because of money and Halloween kind of starts a trend, right? Like this is the first real slasher franchise that we get. And then a couple of years later, 1980, you get Friday the 13th. And that was sort of built from the ground up as uh, as a thing that you could keep adding on to and adding on to. And then Nightmare on Elm Street comes out, I believe, 84. And that's another film like that. And, and so Hollywood, right in this time, you know, Sleepaway Camp. And there's so many movies where they are trying to be the next Halloween, the next, you know, there's all these holiday themed movies there's like april fool's day and everyone's trying to cap and uh, my bloody valentine takes place on valentine's day so everyone is trying to sort of catch this lightning in a bottle where you've got this original movie that sets up a villain and sets up a sort of milieu of characters and then you just keep going back to that well and going back to that well and going back to that well and you know even halloween didn't really nail that right like um I don't think there's any franchise, any slasher movie franchise where you can look at the sixth or seventh movie and be like, oh, that's the best one. <laughs> Although I've heard arguments, you know, about uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. Some people really like the sequels. Everyone says uh, Friday the 13th Part 6 is possibly the best in that franchise. But, you know, I'm, uh, I, I love oh, the God. original there. Betsy Palmer. Getting is, that Jason, is that Jason Lives? Which one I is think that? Jason part Lives, six. yeah, I think it's the one with the... Yeah. Yes, it's Jason Lives is part six. People love that movie. It's the one that's a little bit self-aware and a little bit funny, whereas the other ones kind of yeah. take that ridiculous premise and play it pretty seriously. But, uh, you know, part six is good, but... I like part seven just because that's the one where he... he the, there's the fatality where he kills the girl in the sleeping bag. That is it's, a classic. Uh, yeah. the... <laughs> Not a good movie, but um, pretty cool. Uh, no, it's kind of a clever there. moment there. Yeah. Um, 
So, yeah, let me ask you this. When's the last time you've seen Halloween 2, uh, 1980, 81? Boy, probably about 15, 20 years ago. Wow. Because that's, that's where, that's a very, uh, that's something that causes a lot of polarity in the franchises. There are a lot of people out there that love Halloween 2, man. I know them. I mean, I know people um, that like Halloween 2 even more than the original, and I know other people that think it's not a good movie at all and are very disappointed with I mean right there you talked about how you don't want to know any more about these characters and by part two it's like oh okay Laurie is Michael's sister and stuff like that um, and then also having to compete with these other slasher movies coming out so they had to really ratchet up the violence and, and the gore um, I will say this me personally I really don't have many issues with Halloween 2 at all um, I don't like it as much as John Carpenter's Halloween but I appreciate the fact that you know, he was still involved in the project. We still get his awesome score. Um, and I really do appreciate the fact that it starts off right where this one left off. I like that. I enjoy getting into it and being like, all right, this is where this one ended. But I got to say, man, my interpretation, uh, or not my interpretation, but my my feeling after watching Halloween this last time, which in total is probably like, I don't know, the 50th time I've seen it or something, I really felt like, wow, how amazing would it be if it just never continued from here and that's all we got? You know, like, I think it, I think it would ultimately make it a little bit more powerful because as you expand the franchise, movie after movie, especially when you get to point, you know, part five, six, seven, as you were just talking about, it really kind of tarnishes the franchise a little bit. And... And I do enjoy, I do have a guilty plague. I'll watch pretty much any Halloween movie and even the ones with, you know, where Buster Rhymes is doing Kung Fu. I think that's uh, oh, Halloween, Halloween Resurrection. Resurrection. Uh, that, that is the worst Halloween movie we I We are going to stream uh, a webcam show from the Michael Myers house. Oh, God. Movie's bad. Yeah, throw throw whatever you want at me. That's, that's the worst Halloween movie. But... Um, pretty cool how it got to the point in the franchise where they said okay we're gonna reboot this thing in 2018 and the only way to do it was to just not recognize any of the other mythology that was made because that would be impossible to do at this point like the new movie this the stance that i thought was cool about the new movie is that they're just like well the only thing that's happened is the original and this is 40 years later um but what a franchise i mean at the end of the day you still have to kind of be in awe of how long this thing has been kept alive, how many films have come out, how many directors, how many different ideas, how many characters. It's it's pretty astounding. I mean, it's it's obviously one of the biggest horror movie franchises of all time. Um, yeah, and I mean, you know, like with any character, right? So Michael Myers is established in the original Halloween, and, you know, I almost see it like a comic book series, like a different writer takes over, and they sort of have their own interpretation of what the Green Lantern is supposed to be, right? And, you know, when you're seeing, like, everyone has their version of the character that they like the best, and for me, absolutely, I mean... The original Halloween, that is my favorite Michael Myers. I love the ambiguity of it. I love that he's not really connected to Laurie Strode in any way. Like, you know, you were mentioning the, the thing about her being his sister. And I believe where that came from is they had to shoot some additional scenes for the original Halloween to screen it on TV because they had to cut yes. some of the violence and nudity out of it. So Carpenter That's just right. kind of like tossed off this scene where it's like, oh, this is the connection between these two. And then that became kind of canon in the franchise 
franchise. And I don't necessarily know that you need that. Like, I think one of the things that's really scary about Michael Myers is just the randomness of him, right? Like, he's going to just murder people that remind him of his sister. They don't necessarily have to be his sister. Like, isn't that so much scarier? Yeah, because the only way you can relate to that is if you're psychotic. <laughs> right. And that's, that's <laughs> yes. the, the, <laughs> I mean, that, that, and that's the beauty of it is... Uh, again, we, we get the warning from Loomis over and over, like, it's just pure evil. I right, mean, right. He just wants it, to kill. You want to, you, yes. We, we need to jack this guy up on Thorazine. Yes, we do. You know, when we <laughs> take him to court, you know, like, uh, I don't want to see him anywhere near. Why are we, t- because we have to, it's the law. He understands how dangerous and psychotic and how just devoid of any feeling Michael Myers is. Right. And that's what makes him scary. And I think Carpenter, and and you have to give Deborah Hill credit for it here also, like he knows how scary it is to leave a bunch of open-ended questions. Um, I was saying something similar about Assault in Precinct 13, where we never get the full scope of these characters' backstories. And it's more interesting to not have that sometimes. Um, You know, we don't know the whole history of Loomis and Michael Myers. Um, There is no sort of deeper connection, deeper mystery that we have to explore between between Michael Myers and Laurie Strode or anybody else in this film. It's like he shows up, he does what he does, and no one is safe. And, you know, I think that's one of the problems that that, that I have with the later entries in this franchise, at least the first go at this franchise, is, you know, basically all they can do is just add backstory and complicate things. And I believe it's Halloween 5. It's somewhere around 4 or 5 where there's this whole druid thing that's happening and he is like uh, a a demon and he's been summoned and you know, we don't need any of that, right? Like the original Halloween, one of the things that I love about it is, you know, aside from some things like him stabbing the knife into Bob and pinning him to the wall and stuff like that. I mean, he does have kind of superhuman strength, but there's nothing really supernatural or superhuman in the movie overall. I mean, it basically could happen kind of like it happens. Um, It's not, a sort of supernatural horror movie. You know, there are no ghosts, there's no demons, there's no sort of... I mean, he's an unstoppable killer, but he is unstoppable only because he's just really good at what he does. He could just be a guy who has been devoting his entire life to to murder. And the recent reboot, the 2018 version, um, although I had my issues with that film, the David Gordon Green, Danny McBride uh, reboot, um, I like that they sort of keep him that way, right? And they kind of place the focus more on Laurie Strode and and the kind of person she grew up to be, which is very much in, in concert with what we see her do in, in the original Halloween. And that's probably probably how a character like that dealing with that kind of trauma would grow up. So there is that sort of more grounded realism of it. And I think even starting with Halloween 2, we start to strip that away like more and more and more. And by part six, he's just not scary at all anymore. He's basically Freddy Krueger with less witty repartee. (laughs) Yeah, it's funny. Man, you and I could do a podcast on just the Halloween franchise. There's so much to talk about. I mean... The ch- the way his mask changes from film to film, um, you know, as you were saying, yeah, as they they build up his mythology into the the, the runes, it's I believe it's a uh, part six uh, is the curse of Michael that's Myers. The curse of Michael get, Myers. Uh, that's Paul the one with the uh, druidic oh runes and and uh, like that. 
doesn't really do anything for me. Um, you know, Rob Zombies is interesting also. Like, I, I, I see a vision in his that I don't necessarily see in, in some of those sequels. Like, he wants to go back and really explore how Michael Myers became who Michael Myers is. So, you know, that is at least a little bit more more of a story and it gives you something to sort of chew on that's not just oh we need to to add to this franchise and well let's let's introduce some sort of generic mysteries into it and and have that be the thing that drives the franchise um i'm not crazy about his halloween movies either i mean again i think they're okay but i think the original here is the the only one that i need um probably ever um halloween h2o that came out in the 90s and that's not a great film either but that does sort of take this one back to its roots a little bit yeah it's almost like the three purest halloween movies are the original h2o and then 2018 yeah but uh and i I do i I prefer those to all the others yeah, I, 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 you know, and just get my two cents in. I mean, I do a, a, applaud the zombie movies for their creativity and for, um, let's face it, I mean, making them brutal and scary again after so many Halloween entries coming out that just weren't scary at all. Um, I think he had some pretty intense and terrifying movies. It's just like taking the slasher movie and just really ratcheting it up as far as the violence and stuff like that, which, you know, is what Rob Zombie is really great at. Yeah, um, but, but he does see... that really well in his original movies, too. I mean, uh, I haven't seen three, yeah. from Hill yeah. yet, three from Hell yet, but I love Devil's Rejects. And, you know, that is certainly a brutal, gritty movie and is an original IP. And, and those characters are his own original creation. And he does a great job with them. And, uh, you know... The problem, one of the problems with his Halloween is it, it, it draws really heavily on that, right? Like it's almost as much inspired by The Devil's Reject as it is inspired by John Carpenter's Halloween. Yeah, he's he's the hillbilly horror guy. I mean, yeah. that's what it is, you know. But uh, obviously, he worked very hard on those movies, and I I think he's a, a good filmmaker. So I don't I don't hate on them nearly as much as some people do that think. That no, he, I don't. Know. You know, I, I like Rob Zombie. Bastardized the whole franchise. Great director, <laughs> and I, I I love some of the stuff he does in the horror genre. I, like I really like Lords of Salem, and everybody hates that movie. So. <laughs> We still love you, Rob Zombie, but um, this is a podcast about John Carpenter, and and I, I want to come back and talk about Halloween a little bit more. I mean, I know we have a whole other episode to really delve deeply into it, but um, we should probably talk about. So, how many times have you seen Halloween? Well, I, I could not put a number on it, man. It it's. <laughs> I mean, I do watch it annually, um, around this time of year. So let's see. I'm I'm gonna go safely with even though I know I said earlier on the episode 50 that's probably an exaggeration I've seen it maybe uh, 20 times. Okay, yeah, I'm, I'm like right around there, probably more like 15, but um, we've we've both seen it a lot of times, more than a dozen, I guess we can say. Um, what struck you this time? So I'm, I'm assuming you watched it a couple of days ago or or today to talk about it on the show. What's the thing that jumped out the most on this you know 21st viewing of it for you? Uh, just the style of it, man. Like having seen a lot of Carpenter's films since I've last seen this, right? Like since I've last seen Halloween, I've seen Assault on Precinct 13 and They Live and Prince of Darkness and Starman and I mean, you name it. I've seen all his movies at this point. So what really stood out to me this time was just being able to see stylistically um, his character as a movie director in this. So um, how well it's shot, 
um, how how good it looks and being able to appreciate how you can take a small amount of resources and turn it into something that isn't cheesy. You know, I mean, we could point to little things, we could nitpick little things here and there that um, come through the surface as revealing that it's a low budget movie, like the palm trees in, <laughs> in quote unquote, Illinois, or like, you know, the license the, plates the, on the cars. The, yeah, the, the, the <laughs> <laughs> That's a big one. Uh, the distribution of the leaves, you know, in like there's leaves all over in, in this part of the street, but there's none there and things like that. But if you don't nitpick it, like I think really what I took away from this most is just how good of a movie it is um, pound for pound on such a shoestring budget, basically. Yeah, um, and I mean, one of the things that I think really makes this movie the iconic thing that it is is that it's still scary i mean you know i i've seen a lot of quote-unquote classic horror films and a lot of them you can kind of appreciate on an aesthetic level like you know if you go back to the universal monster movies right dracula and frankenstein and and creature from the black lagoon and stuff like that um no one is sort of cowering in fear at those movies anymore (laughs) but but halloween i mean (laughs) there are moments that get me every time in this and i think you know particularly because of the minimalism of it because Michael Myers is just so inscrutable and such a mystery because of the way he sort of exists in these wide shots and he's just sort of coming at you and you see him the whole way um I think the scares still really work and they're still really effective no matter how many times you see this movie and no matter how much this movie ages like yeah it is it's it's made on this sort of very I don't want to call it timeless way exactly, but, you know, even though there's some some classic 70s fashions in this film and, you know, the, the cars obviously are of the period and everything like that, I mean... This movie doesn't feel dated to me at all. I mean, it feels like it, it works pretty... Like, it almost feels like a period piece set in the 70s more than it does a movie made in the 70s, right? Like, there's no disco music or anything like that. Like, there's nothing to date this film the way, you know, horror movies made today, right? Like, I just saw a preview for something... I forget what it's called, something like Countdown. And it's a horror film about an app that can tell you when you're going to die. And so all the characters are like looking at their smartphones. And this one girl is like, like tomorrow, 48 hours. Oh, shit. Um, And like, obviously, (laughs) a movie like that is not going to hold up at all 10, 20 years from now. Like when the technology has changed and the the culture has changed and everything is sort of off in a, a different direction. Um, but Halloween, I mean, really, I think... Nick, <laughs> what you don't I, think... It, it, I think it could start a whole, a whole franchise of just movies about horror apps. Oh, maybe. <laughs> well, there's already been a few, so it's not even that original of a concept, but, uh, yeah, yeah. I don't think anybody's <laughs> going to be podcasting about that, uh, years down the road. But what I'm saying yeah. about Halloween is that I think you can show it to a 12 year old or what were you eight or nine the first time you saw it? And I think they would sure. still yeah. really have that, that fearful response that they're going through toward there and it is a lot of it comes from the score a lot of it comes from the pacing um i think the pacing in this film is really good the lighting is just you know incredibly atmospheric there's a great shot that gets repeated a few times where we're at the bottom of a staircase and um we see the the shadows on the wall like the bars the slats what do they call them the um not the, the railings, banister, the things that hold the banister up on a staircase. My architectural knowledge—I should have uh, boned up on that before we talked about this. But 
<laughs> there's a shot where you see the shadows, the, those spindles. We see the shadows of those on the wall. There's a little bit of light on the second floor. And we're like looking up this staircase and the sort of evil can come from anywhere. It's a little bit like the shot in Psycho where, where they actually go into to the Bates house. Um, still one of my favorite scenes in all of movies where the detective in that film um, is, is walking up the stairs and Norman Bates dressed as his mother comes out oh. of the room and, and murders him and he falls down the stairs. Like it reminds me a lot of Terrifying. that shot, and uh, and it, it there are moments in Halloween that do have that same sort of shock. Like even the jump scares in this movie, uh, I think work really well. Some of them completely un, unmotivated. Like when they are uh, when Loomis and Brackett are in the the Myers house. And they just sort of walk over by a window, and like a gutter or something swings down and breaks the window for no reason. <laughs> that moment always makes me jump and it's just you know good editing good sound design i mean it's it's not exactly a uh a believable moment exactly but definitely makes the hairs on the back of your neck stand up a little bit yeah so for you it was the timelessness that really kind of struck you this yeah time. i think so and, and also like i was saying before um the pacing of this film where you do get a good scare every couple of minutes um you know because as as brackett says at one point we're all entitled to a good scare it's halloween i love that line um, um, it's it's such a classic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sampled in, in many different places. But, you know, that's uh, like I was saying before, that moment where you just kind of see him inside the Myers house while Laurie is walking away. Those great wide shots, man. Um, when he's stalking, kind of stalking, not really, uh, when Tommy's at school and we get that like really, really creepy POV shot. Uh, and then we get this tracking shot where we're seeing the playground of the school and this kid is all alone and Michael Myers is right there, kind of like following along with him this very smooth very sort of creepy looking uh right to left dolly shot with that we get there so even though if you've seen this movie before you know it doesn't get really violent and brutal until the last act or so or, or pretty close to the end of the movie you've got all these great little mini suspense sequences happening along the way to that that really just sort of kind of prepare you for the carnage and chaos that happens toward the end of this movie I I couldn't agree more. Um, well, listen, it's I'll put it to you this way: you mentioned before it has excellent replay value. I mean, this will be a movie that I continue to watch annually if I can, forever as long as I can, and um, also listen to the music of which. Um, by the way, I think is one of the best scores in any movie. Period. So, um, I think the idea here was that. With this show, there are certain movies in John Carpenter's filmography that are of a certain legendary status, um, you know, universal acclaim that we were going to divide into two shows because there's just so darn much to talk about. So I think in this episode, we just wanted to flesh out, you know, some of the other elements of the, the Halloween franchise, its importance at a movie, as a movie, its origins, thing, things of that um, things of that scenario. And then in this next episode that we're going to be doing on ho- on the same movie, Halloween, we're going to be talking more about, um, you know, maybe not necessarily scene for scene, but certainly 
uh, more of what actually happens in, in the screenplay of the Halloween movie itself. Yeah. And I would actually like to break down a few scenes just kind of shot for shot to discuss how effectively made this is and uh, and, and the way that Carpenter uses the camera and blocks his actors and, and the, the lighting and the cinematography and the music all sort of come together for these incredible effects in this film. Like when we first started the show, it wasn't that long ago, but when we were talking about Dark Star, um, you know, I, I had mentioned sort of my feelings about John Carpenter that he is, you know, not necessarily my favorite director, but there are a few films of his that I think are just absolute stone cold masterpieces, you know, four star films. And this is definitely one of them for me. I mean, this is uh, like you said, this is one that I continue to revisit and will continue to revisit. Uh, it, it's it's one that, you know, may become a Halloween time tradition in the Scalia household if I have kids um, and they are old enough to appreciate it at some point. Uh, this will definitely be a film that I will share with them. Um, I wanted to, to close out this discussion with, well, at least close out the first half of this discussion with uh, Roger Ebert also thought this was a four star movie. And um, as you know about me, because I've mentioned it so, so many times, I'm a, a huge Roger Ebert fan. I, I really grew up reading his reviews. And uh, when I was sort of coming of age as a film fan, it was his work that really pointed me in a lot of different directions that I still am, am pursuing today. And there was a point where I just wanted to see everything he had ever given four stars to. And Halloween is one one of those rare movies that he awarded a perfect score and the end of his review i think just kind of nails it kind of nails a little bit uh, about why this film has its place in the overall picture of of cinema and particularly american cinema that it has and so roger ebert closes out his review by saying we see movies for a lot of reasons sometimes we want to be amused sometimes we want to escape sometimes we want to laugh cry or see sunsets and sometimes we want to be scared i'd like to be clear about this if you don't want to have a really terrifying experience don't see halloween and basically leading up to this throughout this review he's just talking about like the the gut level thrills that he got out of this movie and um you know his uh, his former partner that he used to work with uh Gene Siskel kind of said the same thing i mean he he had this feeling that there were very few movies you know there's so many horror movies out there but there are so few that are actually frightening that are actually scary that actually get under your skin and uh make you want to leave the lights on at night and this one is definitely one of those so I am looking forward to talking more about it. I, I feel like we could do 10 episodes on just this movie and uh, and still oh, yeah. have, have stuff to say. I agree. Um, I think that pretty much wraps this up, unless there's any other further things you wanted to say or can think of. Um, um, I'm oh, good. Yeah, no, me too. Um, I, I will say I have a Blu-ray of this that I think is a few years old. I mean, it's I think there's like a... Ultra HD 4K version, and and they've definitely remastered this movie a number of times. So many versions. Yeah, but the Blu-ray I have, it looks really good. And just to sort of see a movie from that era and and really high definition, and you can kind of see the film grain and stuff like that, and it's a great way to see it. It's a beautiful print of the movie, and I'm glad this one has been preserved. Like, there are some low-budget movies, particularly from the 70s, that they just don't have a good print of it to work from, and and no matter how much you restore it, it's still not going to look fantastic. Fantastic, and I think Halloween still looks fantastic in all the uh, the newer versions that we have. All right, so we should probably let everyone know how to get in touch with us because we would love to hear your thoughts on Halloween, on the show, on stuff we are talking about, maybe doing in the future. Maybe some uh, some opinions that are not exactly the same as ours. I wonder if there are John Carpenter fans who don't like this movie, like. 
I wonder if there's anybody out there who wow. considers himself a real appreciator of John Carpenter's film who think, ah, eh, that one's okay, but, uh, you know, The Fog is way better, or The Thing. I mean, you know, The Thing, and maybe. Uh, you know, that that one's okay, but Memoirs of an Invisible Man is where it's at. <laughs> Those invisible junkies, yeah. I'm sure there's a very, very small cadre of John Carpenter fans who find that to be his best work. But anyway, let us know if you're one of those people, or just in general. You can get in touch with us by email at precinct13podcast at gmail.com. We are on Twitter at 13precinct, facebook.com slash 13precinct, our website where you can download all of our episodes and subscribe to us. You can find our iTunes links, Spotify links, Google links, all of the places where you can possibly get in touch with us. That is precinct13.simplecast.com. Please subscribe to the show. Give us a rating. Give us a review. We really want to hear your thoughts. Um, we would really like to basically engage with our listeners and uh, and see what else you'd like us to do or uh, or what you've liked and maybe not liked about the show so far because again it's a work in progress we still have a whole lot of movies to talk about we are just on film three out of what 21 22 it sounds about right yeah we're so, in the infancy stages still. Yeah, it's uh, it's very early. But hopefully, like John Carpenter, we can get out to a, a really strong start early and, uh, and, you know, take it from there. So with that, I have been Nick. He has been Chris. And I guess we should say Happy Halloween to everyone. Happy Halloween. Adios.